Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. It is my joy and honor to introduce to you Peter Isaacson, who is a brilliant writer, in fact, one of my favorite writers, an educator and the author of Daily Devil's Dictionary at Fair Observer. Hello, Peter. Hi, Tessa. It is such a pleasure to have you. It's a great pleasure to, to be here with you, even though I'm not here with you. <laughs> or 5,000 miles away, I think. But that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am very excited that we are talking today. And uh, do you mind telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's um, a lot of things I could say about myself. The essential is that I've had a long career in the field of education, trying to pioneer new ideas about how to restructure the human approach to education. That's taken me into the software business where I was a publisher, a creator, publisher, producer of software content and software methodologies, software tools, all of that intended to uh, to profit from the human dimension that's uh, fundamental to to education and to show that technology could be uh, compatible with it. Unfortunately, I have to observe that not everyone thinks in the same way. When you start doing things that really have meaning and impact, people deviate and people with, you know, have the money to support it, uh, deviate the conversation towards um, other things such as pure techno technological considerations or purely financial considerations such as how much profit are we going to make and in what scale of time. Uh, whereas education, we should all be aware of, is a fundamental human need, and uh, it requires humans working on it rather than venture capitalists and pure technologists. When we talked in the past, we talked about the concepts of innovation and disruption, including how it applies to education and the whole linguistic framework about that. So do you have ideas on those very trendy concepts? Well, there, there's plenty of, in, in, of really interesting innovation. I think we may be able to see it in the near future because everything that's going on today is calling into question all kinds of relationships uh, about the economy, about society, uh, I mean, not just police brutality, for example, or disease, which are the big issues of the day, uh, but they're coming, those issues are coming together to demonstrate that we've been making the wrong investments. They've also demonstrated that we have the financial capacity to make the right investments. So how do we get on track where people with the good ideas and the and people who have the capacity to support those ideas can come together and do something that's really focused on human needs rather than some idea of shareholder benefit and profit. I mean, the, the two aren't incompatible. You can make money out of great ideas and really useful ideas, but you, you have to really focus on what the outcome, the, the, the ultimate outcome is, which is benefiting society itself, and reaching a stage where we can actually profit in other ways than simply commercial advantage from the wonderful things that humans are capable of doing. And when I say what humans are capable of doing, they don't need technology to do what they're capable of doing. But with the technology, there are things that they can do which weren't always possible without the technology or without 
the social organization that te technology can permit. But obviously, I mean, if you look at the history of technology recently, it's all been based on how does technology play a role to help people who have money make more money? Well, that is very observant. And in the very recent past or present, there has been a hopefully temporary victory of the technological approach where in New York, at least, the person who is going to drive the educational effort is everybody's favorite Bill Gates. And I know that you have written about his past educational campaigns, which was very interesting. Yes, Gates is a typical of example, example of where it goes wrong. He, he, he's abs absolute, absolutely sincere. He's obviously absolutely sincere. He believes in what he's doing. And that's a very American thing. I should, I should add uh, this bit of biographical data that um, I, I was born and raised in the U.S. I... The later phase of my education took place in the UK, and I got very, living in different cultures has changed my original cultural orientation, if you like. And then I've spent most of my professional career, or almost all of it, in France. So I've been working in two languages and across at least three cultures. I would add that there's a fourth culture in my background. And that's black American culture, oddly enough, because from my teenage years, I got involved uh, as a jazz musician with friends who all became professional jazz musicians. I didn't. I went in a different direction, got involved in education and, uh, and uh, things like even philosophy and psychoanalysis and, uh, and various things that got me into a, a, a writing career. Uh, and a publishing career. But uh, so with my the different cultures, uh, cultures I've experienced and have become a part of me, and I think it's reflected in the way I, I talk as well, because it's very difficult for me to, to, to come back to whatever original American accent I ever had. Uh, I can sound very British when I'm with British people, and um, the way I speak, obviously, is it doesn't reflect any specific one of the cultures. And of course, I work uh, most of the time in French, uh, here in France. So all those things have contributed to a, a, a different perception of the world. And I'm not sure how pertinent that is to the question you asked, but, uh, but it does help to explain uh, the complexity of the kinds of things I've been dealing with and which have ultimately led to what I'm doing with Fair Observer, what I've been doing for the past four years, really, initially writing articles often on American culture. For example, I've, for a while I was very specialized in gun culture and uh, more recently in everything else that has to do with it. But yes, the question was about Bill Gates. And what I was saying about Bill Gates is that he um, is very American in the sense that he's sincere about what he believes, but his sincerity is almost an excuse for not really go, uh, trying to understand deeply the issues he's spending his money on. Now, the critical thing is that he's got the money to spend on it. So he makes the decisions on the basis of his beliefs, which most Americans think is the right thing to do. If you believe sincerely in something, you go ahead. It's a proof of your virtue that you actually believe in your ideas and, and can invest in them. 
although most people don't have the amounts of money that Gates has to invest in it. But he goes ahead. I mean, he, he, he did all this um, uh, amazing work in some sense on health or, or initially, and then perhaps he got slightly bored with that and thought that uh, he had something amazing to contribute to the world of education. Of course, he uh, became the you know one of the prime backers of, um, of uh, charter schools. He, uh, in the analysis I did in the articles I wrote about him, uh, and that is not totally original. There are many many people, especially in the educational field, who have critiqued uh, Bill Gates' approach, including teachers, of course, because uh, by by emphasizing not only charter schools, but the principle behind charter schools is that you can manage education the way, same way you manage a software company, a global software company. And that isn't actually how things work in the world of education. Uh, but for him, that was um, the reality he knew. So he sincerely believed that's what you have to do. And this, the real scandal with Gates was that um, he, uh, and I don't know what the, what the history behind this is, but um, he became a chief advisor of Arne Duncan, uh, who was appointed by um, Obama to be the Secretary of Education. And they totally agreed on a, an approach that uh, really uh, tries to do a lot with technology, but also with uh, their curious ideas about financial management or management, human management. And it has nothing to do with education. There are people like Diane Ravitch, who was on that side, on their, their side in, in, in the past and was totally convinced by the technological financial approach to education. She, she turned against and she's been you know, the outstanding crit critic of, um, of that whole approach. But that's, Gates represents what you can do with money when you believe in something. And it turns out, if you look closely at it, that it can be very destructive. That's kind of a classic missionary approach, where if you believe in something, you can go ahead and impose your beliefs on everybody else. And if they don't listen, you force them to. And which, of course, is probably kind of fundamental to our civilization itself. Well, there, you know, there's also another dimension to it, and that is that uh, uh, it's logical. For them, it's logical. They've done these things in their elite world of politics and uh, management of global companies and work with uh, venture capitalists because they all started some, at, at the beginning, they all had to work with venture capitalists. And that, and that, that creates some philosophy of life, uh, which they've considered to be totally justified and totally logical. And it, it isn't illogical if you accept the premises that the whole point of building a business is to spread it as far as possible to get as many consumers on board and to have the reach the, the threshold that allows you to, to make a comfortable profit by achieving a kind of mon monopolistic status. And once you do that and you have all the logical principles that build that together and make it sound coherent, uh, you expect that that's a model that can be applied to anything. But it can't. I mean, whether it's uh, you know, the two the two areas Gates has invested in 
heavily are health and education. And health is, um, yeah, there's the medical pharmaceutical side to it, but there's also the psychological social side of medicine, which is understanding how we as organisms live together in all kinds of you know, relationships. And so it's not reducible to the, the, the supply of pharmaceutical goods. And education is the same thing. It's not uh, something that you can reduce to have supplying content, testing the content. You know, one, one of the big beefs we all have with Bill Gates and, all, and Arnie Duncan is um, the imposition of the idea of the common core as if there is some common core that can be artificially defined and then used uh, for evaluation purposes to test people's performance. And when I say people's performance, of course, when you look at that educational program, there are two problems with that. One is that you're talking about the performance of students and you don't even know what they're supposed to be learning, but you've decided arbitrarily that uh, they must uh, all share the same thing, the common core. And then the, the, the teachers themselves, because the teachers are evaluated on how well the students conform to the criteria built into common core. So it, it's, it's very logical. It's very rational. But it's just totally anti-human. You, you know, one thing that you said that I like very much, you said that it is logical if you accept the premises. But I think that actually can be applied to about everything that has ever happened in history or ever has been pushed on people throughout the history of the humankind. As long as you accept the premises, most things are very logical. And I guess this is, this is how human brain works. I've been slogging through uh, Thomas Piketty's latest book. Uh, I've got it in French, which I, I had the French edition before it was translated into English. So, but uh, it's a capital and ideology. And the ideology is really important. And that, that's the point he's making throughout the book, is that you can, you can analyze money and finance and capital and industrial organization um, the way people have been doing for centuries now. Uh, but uh, if you don't take into account that the ide ideological structure that provides it with the framework that, for one thing, makes it work, yes, I mean, it gives it an internal logic, but it also convinces people to accept it, even when it's illogical in terms of um, their own lives or the structure of their lives or the or the coherence of society itself. One question that I have, because you're so good at analyzing language, what got you into language and how do you think language interacts with life and whether there is a bidirectional relationship, you think? Let's talk about that. Um, I've always been interested in language. Uh, I did, yeah, at, at uh, UCLA and then Oxford, I was uh, specialized in English literature and then at Oxford in 16th and 17th century English literature, uh, which in itself is interesting because you, you cannot uh, deal with the language, which literature is, obviously literature is the study of how people who know how to use language use it in useful and, and entertaining ways. But um, when you do what I did, you, you were as focused on history as much as language. So history is how people do things together and how they did things together, because it's all in the past tense. 
and it's uh, it invites you to try and understand how those things came together. Now, if we're reading contemporary literature, we're focused on what we like and the style and the uh, and the current ideologies that uh, we we respond to. But when you go back into literature from history, uh, from any period in history, if it's sufficiently far away from modern times, you realize that there are all kinds of ideological underpinnings. And when I say ideological, it's not in some sort of political sense. It's uh, We used to call it uh, when I was studying 16th century literature uh, at UCLA and then at Oxford, we called it the worldview, the Elizabethan worldview, for example. So it is, uh, it's the, the relationship people have with the entire world around them. When I came to France, I discovered um, the Michel Foucault, uh, and I was going to say something about that because um, I, I'm totally oppo- not opposed to, but uneasy with uh, the postmodernist movement, especially as it's played out in the US. And Michel Foucault is one of the, prime movers in in that area who had a great deal of influence on American academics. And I I found that just totally off-putting the way they interpreted. But Foucault had some really interesting ideas and, and, um, and a really interesting approach to precisely the study of um, history and language together. And it wasn't so much ideology, but culture. You know, as partly as an answer to your question, I should mention that in my background for quite a long time, uh, although I've moved away from that recently, I was heavily focused on intercultural communication, working with even you know companies and universities and academic institutions on uh, the question of how cultures misunderstand each other and what happens, uh, especially, obviously, the people who pay from it uh, for it are from the business world. So uh, in, in the area, in the field of intercultural communication, our clients, our customers are companies that want to know, how should I be doing things when I'm exporting to such and such a country or when I build a multinational team? Uh, how, do, uh, how do I smooth out the relations and that sort of thing? But all those things are, you've got language, history, and by the way, one of the reproaches I make to my friends and colleagues in the intercultural field is that uh, because they're working with businesses, they reject history. And history is a big, important uh, component of anything you want to try and understand about intercultural relations. But we keep history and politics out of it because it's all about business. And that's one of the, you know, one of these um, effects of modern culture, modern management culture, which is compartmentalizing things to the point of excluding what's really interesting, what's really instructive, and which what could really be helpful if you actually built it into your algorithms. This is all very interesting. It actually brings me right uh, to the next question. I know that in our conversations in the past, we talked about the cultural differences between, I would say, ideology in the States and in France. And I know that I was actually kind of surprised and shocked to find out that in France, you have not observed that kind of moralization that I'm seeing here. Because see, I'm not from here either. 
well, you are, you are from the States. I'm not from the States. But I have gotten completely used to the fact that there is a very clear good and bad in every echo chamber. And if you stray away even a little bit on the linguistic level, then you're a bad person and everybody's going to shame you. And especially online, it plays out in very strange ways. But I have kind of accepted it, that this is the way things are. And then when you told me that, no, it is not like that in France, and I was actually surprised. So let's, let's talk about that. Yes. I, I, well, actually, what I was saying earlier about um, Michel Foucault is a good illustration of that. It's true. Everything, and I, I was—I've been very interested in your testimony about how things work in the U.S. Obviously, I keep up with with the U.S. culture as much as I—well, not as much as I can, very intensively, uh, because um, I write a lot about U.S. culture. But because I'm not living in it on a permanent basis, uh, and when I do go back to the states. Uh, I don't really get involved in the kinds of networks that you and other people are involved with when, when you're there. Uh, it doesn't exactly have the same impact. Uh, but what I realize is that uh, things really become distorted, even the same things, identical things, such as the thinking and the writing of Michel Foucault. And what you've been telling me really helps me to understand some of the problems that I had reacting to the postmodernist movement in academia. And that is, when I read Foucault in France, I read somebody who was thinking about complex things and emitting all kinds of sometimes even contradictory ideas. And he was very contradictory. You know, he was he was a, a left-wing, uh, well, I don't want to go into the details of the politics, but he, he was obviously on the left the radical sort of side of um, of culture, French culture. He was gay. Uh, he uh, he he was he wrote about subjects that people didn't want to write about. He wrote a, a history of sexuality and so on. And he, at the same time, uh, as a kind of free thinking radical Westerner, he uh, was very supportive. Of, I mean, more than supportive. I mean, he he really almost became a propagandist for Khomeini when he returned to to Iran and conducted the revolution that led to the regime of the imams so you those those kinds of really contra I mean, what people would think of as contradictory impulses let's call them of somebody who's thinking out loud but thinking after doing a great deal of research is produces something that's complex and always if you're if you're trying to get in tune with it it produces some really interesting insights and it helps you to produce your own interesting insight it's not it's not a kind of bible to be studied and reproduced well that's what happened when it got to the states it became Foucault is telling us the truth that we didn't want to know or that people don't want us to 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 broadcast and so it became this whole thing about power relationships. And he did, obviously, that was the orientation of his work. Is if you want to understand how things happen in history, you have to understand who was exercising power and what cultural means they put in place to do that, or what, or whether they put them in place or not, or would they mo mobilize from, from the past for 
Uh, so all that leads to extremely interesting reflections, and no particular person who gets involved in that exhausts all those reflections, and certainly not Foucault himself. He wouldn't have pretended, pretended to do that. But as soon as he arrived on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, the American universities picked it up as this is the truth we have to apply to everything. And so you, postmodernism became a movement to explain that it, you know, it was about one class of people, one category of people dominating another. And some of that was true. I mean, some of it uh, is part of the structure that you can visibly detect when you're looking at history and language and literature. But that wasn't the point he was making. But as soon as it became the, 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 this accepted orthodoxy in the U.S., it became the kind of blame game you were describing to me. That now we know why you, you guys, whoever you are, are our, our enemies and why you are exercising your power over us. And power does work in, I mean, that does explain part of the ways, the mechanism of power. And these are things that are really important to, to be aware of. But it doesn't immediately identify enemies. And that's what happened as soon as it, it, this French idea migrated to American culture. American culture said, this is how we know uh, who our enemy is. And obviously, we're seeing that whole enemy structure in contemporary politics, where you've had Russiagate for the last three years. The Democrats are still doing it, saying Russia is responsible for everything that's wrong with the, the states, or with the current state of politics, which is Donald Trump, of course. Uh, so it's just one person. And, but it's one person and one identified enemy, which is Russia. And of course, now Trump is focusing on China. He'll go on to something else because that's all the logic of political marketing. Uh, but it's this curious thing that happens in the States. You have to, first of all, identify who your enemy is and start working on your strategy for attacking the enemy. The difference in France is that people invented this system of analyzing. Roland Barthes did it. Now, Roland Barthes was my first influence. When I was at Oxford, I was reading Roland Barthes, and that was revolutionary. It was certainly contradictory or contrary to the Oxford approach to literature, because he was, he was a more a literary man than a historian of ideas. But the, the French way of doing it was to, the, the French approach, and it's still the case, is to discover subjects of discussion that people can play around with. And ge that generates other ideas. Not that there aren't people doing really silly and stupid things in, 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 in French intelligentsia. That, that exists as well. But it's a much more open culture, and it doesn't try to give too much force to the ideas it, 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 it puts forward. It doesn't use them as weapons. It doesn't weaponize the, the, the intelligence it produces. And the way I see it, I mean, and the way you describe it, and I can see plenty of examples of that in the U.S., is everything is weaponized. If you have a good idea, you, you can't just leave it uh, for people to, to, to play around with and, and even develop, because that's how, how culture works. A good idea becomes an even better idea. It becomes a more complex idea, and it morphs into something else. But if you've got the idea, you label it, and then you decide that 
it, it is being threatened by some other idea or ideology, then you just focus on the battle between those two. And that, that seems to be, uh, be, it seems to have become a reflex in American culture, which wasn't totally the case when I left the U.S. 50 years ago. This is this is all very interesting. You know, what really shocked me in your talking about the differences in our early conversations is that I thought the entire world was doing the shaming around the pandemic, depending on which side you're in. And here I know that in my circles, essentially, if somebody didn't like the lockdown or they dared go outside or they dared go to the beach, they were the enemy of the people and Hitler. And when you told me it wasn't like that in France, I was shocked. Well, I'm still shocked. I cannot imagine that. So... Is it really so? Is it really so that in, in France, people did not weaponize the ideology around the pandemic? No, no. I mean, some people possibly do. I mean, there, I haven't investigated the cases. You, you get a full range of human behaviors in every culture. But uh, it is not... One of the things about describing cultures is you, you want to describe what influences are evident in daily, the day, daily behavior between people. And that kind of instinct for shaming people just is, isn't something that people would consider normal. It, it, it does happen. I've seen incidents where somebody's uh, worried because they're, they're getting some, in a, in a, say in a supermarket, where somebody is not respecting you know, what they call the, what Macron has called the be, uh, uh, barrier gestures, the geste barrière. If somebody, you know, there is this, this idea that some people are not respecting the space, but you just remind them and it doesn't lead to any kind of judgment of the person. So, I mean, those little frictions exist, but they don't turn into, now I know who my enemy is. And how is it over there right now? Because it seems like things change every day, everywhere. You don't know what tomorrow brings. There's something else every day. So how does it feel? Well, I'm in a privileged place. I'm, I'm in the southwest, uh, not far from a, a place most people have heard of, which is Cognac. So we're in Cognac country. It's not, it's not remote. I mean, it's not underpopulated, but it is a kind of rural area that's um, far enough away from Paris to uh, be outside the influence of that, the density like New York. I mean, what, what we've seen is that um, the coronavirus has really created the most damage in areas where the population is dense. It, it's um, a part of the world, a part of France, that's generally more relaxed, obviously, than Paris or or other pl crazy places like the Côte d'Azur, the Riviera, and we don't have that many tourists. Although it's certainly a wonderful place for tourists to visit, so it's 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 pretty relaxed. People have a a, a slower way of life, and so they're less stressed and they're less likely to get upset about things. Uh, so I don't know if that's a good indication of, uh, of, of uh, the way things are in France. But, <laughs> well, I, I have two sons who live in Paris, and uh, they, they ha we, we, I haven't interrogated them on the, that kind of thing, uh, whether they've had any problems, but uh, apparently they haven't. So, uh, I mean, they, they're cool. They're cool. <laughs> 
Well, I can't wait to visit the magical land where people don't shame each other on every matter. <laughs> you know what I would like to talk about? I know that we mentioned Daily Devil's Dictionary, and if we can dive into that, that would be wonderful. And also, if there are any other projects that you want to discuss, anything that you're working on? Okay, okay the Devil's Dictionary, I, uh, you know, I've been doing it for nearly nearly three years. It started in October 2017. And I, I, I looked the other day, I, I've done, because it is five days a week, so I've done over 600 columns. And it's really fun. And it was designed to be a kind of fun exercise to draw people's attention to precisely to the role language has in our understanding of our own lives and our own society and our culture and our ideology. And um, initially, I, I, actually, I, I thought it would be something really small, really punchy, uh, but for various reasons imposed by our editorial director, it morphed into pretty, pretty much a full-blown article every day. And that, uh, because I structured it with the idea that I'm going to focus on a word, so that's language. Uh, we're going to see how people are understanding and misunderstanding the language we use and how it's sometimes being used specifically so that we do misunderstand it, so that we don't perceive the sense that's behind it. So that's a fun sort of thing. And, of course, uh, I borrowed the idea from Ambrose Bierce, a 19th century journalist who did this, who did, did the kind of thing of redef redefining words to say what they really mean in society. Uh, but my real aim finally became, because of the structure I gave to it, where I, I do go into two levels of context, the immediate context in which the, the, the word appeared, and then the cultural context or the political or social context in which it was produced, in which it, it has its meaning. And then I, al I always have historical context or historical note, uh, which tries to situate it in a larger, longer perspective. So it becomes what I consider a pedagogical tool. And this is something we're working on at Fair Observer is uh, we've designed a training course uh, that we can actually deploy, which is live training, although we can have an online dimension to it as well for uh, the corporate world or, or for, for example, uh, journalism schools, but it could be universities as well, at, at, where it's a pedagogical approach. It's an approach to understanding how language works in history, it, in its historical context. For journalists, it actually has a, a lot of meaning because it uh, it allows us to demonstrate what happens when you write an article, the, the, all the phases you have to go through of having a, an idea, developing the idea, researching the idea, putting it into, into some kind of shape and uh, having some structure to it and reaching a conclusion and so on. So we can have a lot of fun working with students because the students, this is something anybody can do. You don't have to be specialized in history or in, in some field of journalism. Any, anybody can do it. And it's a way of discovering how well you can read the articles you read or whatever the source is. It could be television as well. It could be anything. It could be the internet and the social media. Uh, so this is something we've been working on 
developing into a product that we can use for educational purposes so where we can actually do courses. Um, we're also going to publish a collection of, of, um, of daily devil's dictionary articles and I'll build into that uh, an analysis of how we do it and what what the point of it is. But uh, that's so that's that's a project that we're we're working on now because we we've decided that you know we're focused on the on getting the journal out the daily uh, not the daily double edition the, the fair observer which is a crowdsourced journal so we we publish from everyone from anyone who has something interesting to publish and I'd like to do the same thing with daily double dictionary and get people to do their own contributions to the Daily Double Dictionary. Uh, but so, so really what I'm saying is that um, part of what we're doing as a team is uh, working on new approaches to using this journalistic platform we have, which emphasizes crowdsourced publishing and which recognizes that people who don't consider themselves journalists have something really important to say and something that goes further than what journalists do, uh, which is part of the demonstration of Daily Devil's Dictionary, because I'm showing how the journalists are in some ways manipulating us. So if we have, if we can develop a, a better notion of sincerity and liberty of a freedom from ideology I, i'm not saying we should reject ideology ideology is a component of every culture so you, you you can't annihilate it but uh if we're aware of how it works where it is how it works how it influences us this is something that we really need to know especially today where the technology itself is just massacring our minds by dominating, uh, you know, by giving us even just the idea of, uh, of um, artificial intelligence. It tells us that we don't need to be intelligent or to try to be intelligent because you, you, nobody is intelligent. People are as intelligent as they try to be. You have to make an effort to be intelligent. Everyone's intelligent. I mean, a lot of people have said that, of course, but they're not using their intelligence. But even the people who are very intelligent can stop trying to use their intelligence. And that's where they become pure ideologues. This is a dynamic that I think we can develop, and I think people are open to it. But that has to be introduced into education itself. That has to become a premise of our educational system. And it isn't, because our educational system is inherited from the industrial period, where it was all about teaching us what we know, need, need to know as producers of somebody else's uh, enterprise or, or project. And, and then it got a little bit more complex when we, we, not, we needed to be educated, not just as producers, because nobody knew what job we were going to get. So uh, we have to have some idea of being responsible for working in a, an industrial system and having the behaviors that, that are required for that. But then yeah, about 100 years ago, I guess, we started also being educated to be consumers. So education as we know it today is based on learning everything you need to know to be an effective and pretty much obedient producer, as well as an obedient consumer. And here, what I'm, what I'm talking about is um, it would be, we can do all those things. We can produce and we can consume. There's nothing wrong with either of those. 
but we can also be aware of who we are when we're doing it and how, how we relate to other people in that and what it means, what impact it has on the environment, what impact it has on other people, what meaning it has as society evolves, what meaning it has as we try to address the problems that have nothing to do with who we are as producers and consumers, such as how do we deal with uh, police brutality for the black community. So now white people are in the streets doing that because they're starting to think about it. Some of them are there because they're, they're afraid, but others because they realize this is part of the complexity that we, we need to think about in original ways. I fear that if you want to introduce that to education, you will really have to fight with the technologists. Quite, quite honestly, yeah, I, for the last 25 years, I guess, uh, maybe even 30 years, I've been developing, well, I, I, I was one of the first publishers in France and in Europe, when I worked with other people who had already innovated in the UK. Uh, of uh, educational technology. Um, at the time, I, I, here we're in 1988, 89, 90, we were announcing that we were producing multimedia. Nobody knew what multimedia meant. And I, and I was also at that time telling people that uh, you know, you've got to get ready for this because today you have telephones, you have television, and you have IT, you have computers. Tomorrow, they will all be together in the same thing. People looked at me as if I was mad. Uh, what? Uh, you know, how can you have a telephone that's also a computer, that's also a video, a television set? And of course, that's where we are. Uh, you know, now, <laughs> people can hardly believe that that, that was never the case. Uh, so I was, I was really uh, a pioneer in introducing technology to education. I was, my, my field was, was always training. Not, not so much education as professional training. And that, uh, yeah, that, that, the focus was on, for me, was on what people learn and how they learn. And there was no question, in my mind, there was no question that technology could take over what humans weren't capable of doing. Technology could merely add something to what we were refusing to deal with because we well, because of a number of things, including the tradition of industrial, the industrial tr approach to education. Um, so in, in that sense, technology could liberate us to be more human, to be more creative, to be more, more collaborative. And those were the themes I, I was working on in those days. And then what did I discover? Because I actually had a successful business creating, producing, publishing uh, audiovisual content, uh, well, interactive video, uh, which had all those three d d dimensions to it. And in those days, we were, we, we were linking analog technology with digi digital technology because the only digital part of it was, was the, the computer. So we found ways of putting boards in, in computers to... To, to, to put to deliver a video image uh, on a screen uh, and then use the, the 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 computer program to do pedagogical development with it and what what I noticed everybody else doing was that they were duplicating the way you teach in a classroom and you give people information and then test them on it what we did or what I did and my teams did was to create a context in which there were things to think about. And that's how that was 
what video could do because it, it allowed us to create fictional situations where there was a human a human relationship that that needed to be examined as well as all the principles I mean, we're, a, lot, a lot of these were management type courses uh, but there were also you know things to calculate and rules to apply and that sort of thing but instead of giving people the rules and saying can you account for the rules we built from the situations and we went into the depth of variability of of behavior which made it fun which made it real and fun at the same time Uh, so what you're learning about it one situation doesn't necessarily apply exactly in the same way to another situation and we worked on that as well how you make people how you help people you don't make people do anything you help people to uh, understand how the, the power they have to use what they're what they're absorbing rather than what they're learning in the sense of being taught but they're absorbing things that that always have a, a sufficient amount of complexity for them to find ways of transport transposing to other to other situation or to their own situation and to answer your question as soon as we started doing this i thought there were people who said to me well don't give away your 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 secrets and i said well what secrets do i have and this is all human stuff this is there's nothing it's not i don't i haven't invented algorithms i haven't invented technology and what I realized is that nobody wanted to imitate that because that that required intellectual investment. What they wanted to do, because the the technology was emerging and everything went digital within five years in the in the early nineties, uh, what they wanted to do was sell the technology to have their technology, their proprietary technology, whatever it was, maybe to build some you know software dimension or algorithm into it which makes it theirs so they have a monopoly on it, and sell it. So anything about what you're trying to deliver, what it's, what it's going to be used for, for the purposes that people are interested in, because education is about bringing people up to another level, people lost interest in that. They say, well, how can technology do what people believe education should do? And what people believe about education tends to be all wrong. It tends to be, you know, it built on models that were that were created uh, 250 years ago. Oh, that, that is very enlightening. And I think that if we look at the origin of modern education as something that was invented to essentially move people from listening to their farmer parents to becoming factory workers and then on and on and on and on and on, that's... That throws a lot of light on what's happening today. And we definitely covered a lot of information today. Before we wrap up, is there something you want to say? And also, where do people find you? Ah, where can people find me? Well, they can find me on Fair Observer. But uh, also, uh, my email is very simple. It's peter at isaacson.com. So they can, they, people who want to contact me directly can do that. Uh, I also have a fair observer address, but uh, but um, uh, the easiest thing is my first name, Peter, at Isaacson.com, I-S-A-C-K-S-O-N. And uh, I, yeah, I'm looking, uh, I'm always open to getting involved with people who do have projects where I can help them on the projects, uh, people who are interested in the kinds of things I've been talking about. Uh, one of the things uh, I should mention is that I... I I have a product which we've been working on trying to find a way to put on the market uh, with Fair Observer. But actually, this was before I began 
collaborating with Fair Observer. It is software that I created uh, with with my team, which is based on nonlinear logic, and it's a tool for learner creativity, but under the supervision of teachers or trainers or instructors, whatever, uh, which we call Chatscaper. And so it's it's a Chatscaper, and it's it's a lot of fun. And I've I, you know I've talked to a lot of uh, potential. Uh, VCs or business angels who, oh yeah, this is a great idea. With this product, I, I ran into the same problems I've always had is that um, people, if they can't understand why something is really structured for human use and not just uh, a simple consumer product, they they shy away from it. I've got loads of examples in my own personal history of that, of great products that have worked and we've proved that have worked. Not necessarily software, even methodologies of teaching methodology. And what, what I've discovered consistently is that as soon as people see, wow, this is magnificent, it works. Oh, but you have to invest culturally in it. And that's what people don't want to do. They don't want to change their culture. And their culture is business. So um, it's very difficult. But I mention that simply because I, I am, we are talking to people now and looking for people who might be interested in uh, getting involved in a really exciting educational project that turns around a, a product itself, which can become a, a purely commercial product. Well, thank you so much. It, it was a great pleasure, and I will talk to you soon.